Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain Chapter 9 The Tournament They were always having grand tournaments there at Camelot, and very stirring and picturesque and ridiculous human bullfights they were, too, but just a little wearisome to the practical mind. However, I was generally on hand for two reasons. A man must not hold himself aloof from the things which his friends and his community have at heart, if he would be liked, especially as a statesman. And both as businessman and statesman, I wanted to study the tournament and see if I couldn't invent an improvement on it. That reminds me to remark, in passing, that the very first official thing I did in my administration, and it was on the very first day of it, too, was to start a patent office, for I knew that a country without a patent office and good patent laws was just a crab, and couldn't travel anyway but sideways or backways. Things ran along a tournament nearly every week, and now and then the boys used to want me to take a hand, I mean Sir Lancelot and the rest, but I said I would by and by, no hurry yet, and too much government machinery to oil up and set to rights and start a-going. We had one tournament which was continued from day to day during more than a week, and as many as five hundred knights took part in it from first to last. They were weeks gathering. They came on horseback from everywhere, from the very ends of the country, and even from beyond the sea, and many brought ladies, and all brought squires and troops of servants. It was a most gaudy and gorgeous crowd, as to costumery, and very characteristic of the country and the time, in the way of high animal spirits, innocent indecencies of language, and happy-hearted indifference to morals. It was fight or look on, all day and every day, and sing, gamble, dance, carouse, half the night, every night. They had a most noble good time. You never saw such people those banks of beautiful ladies shining in their barbaric splendors, would see a knight sprawl from his horse in the lists, with a lance-shaft the thickness of your ankle clean through him and the blood spouting, and instead of fainting they would clap their hands and crowd each other for a better view, only sometimes one would dive into her handkerchief and look ostentatiously broken-hearted and then you could lay two to one that there was a scandal there somewhere, and she was afraid the public hadn't found it out. The noise at night would have been annoying to me ordinarily, but I didn't mind it in the present circumstances, because it kept me from hearing the quacks detaching legs and arms from the day's cripples. They ruined an uncommon good old cross-cut saw for me, and broke the sawbuck too, but I let it pass. And as for my axe, well— I made up my mind that the next time I lent an axe to a surgeon I would pick my century. I not only watched this tournament from day to day, but detailed an intelligent priest from my Department of Public Morals and Agriculture, and ordered him to report it, for it was my purpose, by and by, when I should have gotten the people along far enough, to start a newspaper. The first thing you want in a new country is a patent office, then work up your school system, and after that out with your paper. A newspaper has its faults, and plenty of them, but no matter. It's hark from the tomb for a dead nation, and don't you forget it. You can't resurrect a dead nation without it. There isn't any way. So I wanted to sample things, and be finding out what sort of reporter material I might be able to rake together out of the sixth century, 
when I should come to need it. Well, the priest did very well, considering. He got in all the details, and that is a good thing in a local item. You see, he had kept books for the undertaker department of his church when he was younger, and there, you know, the money's in the details. The more details, the more swag. Bearers, mutes, candles, prayers, everything counts. And if the bereaved don't buy prayers enough, you mark up your candles with a forked pencil, and your bill shows up all right. And he had a good knack at getting in the complimentary thing here and there about a night that was likely to advertise—no, I mean a night that had influence. And he also had a neat gift of exaggeration, for in his time he had kept door for a pious hermit who lived in a sty and worked miracles. Of course, this novice's report lacked a whoop and crash and lurid description, and therefore wanted the true ring. But its antique wording was quaint and sweet and simple, and full of the fragrances and flavors of the time, and these little merits made up in a measure for its more important lacks. Here is an extract from it. Then Sir Brian de la Isles and Grummore Grummerson, knights of the castle, encountered with Sir Aglovale and Sir Tor, and Sir Tor smote down Sir Grummore Grummerson to the earth. Then came Sir Carados of the Dolorous Tower, and Sir Turquine, knights of the castle, and there encountered with them Sir Percival de Gallus, and Sir Lamorac de Gallus, that were two brethren, and there encountered Sir Percival with Sir Carados, and either brake their spears unto their hands, and then Sir Turquine with Sir Lamorac, and either of them smote down other horse and all to the earth and either parties rescued other and horsed them again. And Sir Arnold and Sir Gauter, knights of the castle, encountered with Sir Blandolus and Sir Kay, and these four knights encountered mightily, and brake their spears to their hands. Then came Sir Pertolope from the castle, and there encountered with him Sir Lionel, and there Sir Pertolope the green knight smote down Sir Lionel, brother to Sir Lancelot. All this was marked by noble heralds, who bear him best, and their names. Then Sir Bleoberus brake his spear upon Sir Gareth, but of that stroke Sir Bleoberus fell to the earth. When Sir Galahodin saw that, he bade Sir Gareth keep him, and Sir Gareth smote him to the earth. Then Sir Galahod gat a spear to avenge his brother, and in the same wise Sir Gareth served him and Sir Dinadan, and his brother La Cote Male Tail, and Sir Sagramore Le Desiris, and Sir Dodinus Le Savage, and all these he bare down with one spear. When King Aswisance of Ireland saw Sir Gareth fare so, he marvelled what he might be, that one time seemed green, and another time, at his again coming, he seemed blue, and thus at every course that he rode to and from he changed his colour so that there might neither king nor knight have ready cognizance of him. Then Sir Aguisance, the king of Ireland, encountered with Sir Gareth, and there Sir Gareth smote him from his horse, saddle and all. And then King Carados of Scotland, and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man. And in the same wise he served King Uriens of the land of Gore. And then there came in Sir Bagdemagus, and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man to the earth and Bagdemagus's son Malignus brake a spear upon Sir Gareth mightily and knightly, 
and then sir galahalt the noble prince cried on high knight with the many colors well hast thou justed now make thee ready that i may just with thee sir gareth heard him and he gat a great spear and so they encountered together and there the prince brake his spear but sir gareth smote him upon the left side of the helm that he reeled here and there and he had fallen down had not his men recovered him truly said king arthur that knight with the many colors is a good knight wherefore the king called unto him sir launcelot and prayed him to encounter with that knight sir said launcelot i may as well find in my heart for to forbear him at this time for he hath had travail enough this day and when a good knight doth so well upon some day it is no good knight's part to let him of his worship and namely when he seeth a knight hath done so great labour for peradventure said sir launcelot his quarrel is here this day and peradventure he is best beloved with this lady of all that be here for i see well he paineth himself and enforceth him to do great deeds and therefore said sir launcelot as for me this day he shall have the honour though it lay in my power to put him from it i would not there was an unpleasant little episode that day which for reasons of state i struck out of my priest's report you will have noticed that garry was doing some great fighting in the engagement when i say garry i mean sir gareth garry was my private pet name for him it suggests that i had a deep affection for him and that was the case but it was a private pet name only and never spoken aloud to any one much less to him being a noble he would not have endured a familiarity like that from me well to proceed i sat in the private box set apart for me as the king's minister while sir dinadan was waiting for his turn to enter the lists he came in there and sat down and began to talk for he was always making up to me because i was a stranger and he liked to have a fresh market for his jokes the most of them having reached that stage of where where the teller has to do the laughing himself while the other person looks sick i had always responded to his efforts as well as i could and felt a very deep and real kindness for him too for the reason that if by malice of fate he knew the one particular anecdote which i had heard oftenest and had most hated and most loathed all my life he had at least spared it me it was one which i had heard attributed to every humorous person who had ever stood on american soil from columbus down to artemus ward it was about a humorous lecturer who flooded an ignorant audience with the killingest jokes for an hour and never got a laugh and then when he was leaving some gray simpletons wrung him gratefully by the hand and said it had been the funniest thing they had ever heard and it was all they could do to keep from laughing right out in meeting that anecdote never saw the day that it was worth the telling and yet i had sat under the telling of it hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of times and cried and cursed all the way through then who can hope to know what my feelings were to hear this armor-plated ass start in on it again in the murky twilight of tradition before the dawn of history while even lactantius might be referred to as the late lactantius and the crusades wouldn't be born for five hundred years yet just as he finished the call-boy came so haw-hawing like a demon he went rattling and clanking out like a crate of loose castings and i knew nothing more it was some minutes before i came to 
and then I opened my eyes just in time to see Sir Gareth fetch him an awful welt, and I unconsciously out with the prayer, I hope to gracious he's killed. But by ill luck, before I had got half through with the words, Sir Gareth crashed into Sir Sagramore the desirous, and sent him thundering over his horse's crupper, and Sir Sagramore caught my remark, and thought I meant it for him. Well, whenever one of those people got a thing into his head, there was no getting it out again. I knew that, so I saved my breath, and offered no explanations. As soon as Sir Sagramore got well, he notified me that there was a little account to settle between us, and he named a day three or four years in the future, place of settlement, the lists where the offence had been given. I said I would be ready when he got back. You see, he was going for the Holy Grail. The boys all took a flyer at the Holy Grail now and then. It was a several years' cruise. They always put in the long absence snooping around in the most conscientious way, though none of them had any idea where the Holy Grail really was, and I don't think any of them actually expected to find it, or would have known what to do with it if he had run across it. You see, it was just the Northwest Passage of that day, as you may say. That was all. Every year expeditions went out holy grailing, and next year relief expeditions went out to hunt for them. There was worlds of reputation in it, but no money. Why, they actually wanted me to put in. Well, I should smile. End of chapter 9 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain Chapter 10 Beginnings of Civilization the round table soon heard of the challenge, and of course it was a good deal discussed, for such things interested the boys. The king thought I ought now to set forth in quest of adventures, so that I might gain renown, and be the more worthy to meet Sir Sagramore when the several years should have rolled away. I excused myself for the present. I said it would take me three or four years yet to get things well fixed up and going smoothly. Then I should be ready. All the chances were that at the end of that time Sir Sagramore would still be out grailing, so no valuable time would be lost by the postponement. I should then have been in office six or seven years, and I believed my system and machinery would be so well developed that I could take a holiday without its working any harm. I was pretty well satisfied with what I had already accomplished. In various quiet nooks and corners, I had the beginnings of all sorts of industries under way. Nuclei of future vast factories, the iron and steel missionaries of my future civilization. In these were gathered together the brightest young minds I could find, and I kept agents out raking the country for more all the time. I was training a crowd of ignorant folk into experts, experts in every sort of handiwork and scientific calling. These nurseries of mine went smoothly and privately along undisturbed in their obscure country retreats, for nobody was allowed to come into their precincts without a special permit, for I was afraid of the church. I had started a teacher factory and a lot of Sunday schools the first thing. As a result, I now had an admirable system of graded schools in full blast in those places and also a complete variety of Protestant congregations all in a prosperous and growing condition. Everybody could be any kind of a Christian he wanted to. There was perfect freedom in that matter. 
but I confined public religious teaching to the churches and the Sunday schools, permitting nothing of it in my other educational buildings. I could have given my own sect the preference and made everybody a Presbyterian without any trouble, but that would have been to affront a law of human nature. Spiritual wants and instincts are as various in the human family as are physical appetites, complexions, and features, and a man is only at his best, morally, when he is equipped with a religious garment whose color and shape and size most nicely accommodate themselves to the spiritual complexion, angularities, and stature of the individual who wears it. And, besides, I was afraid of a united church. It makes a mighty power the mightiest conceivable, and then, when it by and by gets into selfish hands, as it is always bound to do, it means death to human liberty and paralysis to human thought. All mines were royal property, and there were a good many of them. They had formerly been worked as savages always work mines, holes grubbed in the earth, and the mineral brought up in sacks of hide by hand at the rate of a ton a day but I had begun to put the mining on a scientific basis as early as I could. Yes, I had made pretty handsome progress when Sir Sagramore's challenge struck me. Four years rolled by, and then—well, you would never imagine it in the world. Unlimited power is the ideal thing when it is in safe hands. The despotism of heaven is the one absolutely perfect government. An earthly despotism would be the absolutely perfect earthly government, if the conditions were the same, namely, the despot, the perfectest individual of the human race, and his lease of life perpetual. But, as a perishable, perfect man must die, and leave his despotism in the hands of an imperfect successor. An earthly despotism is not merely a bad form of government, it is the worst form that is possible. My works showed what a despot could do with the resources of a kingdom at his command. Unsuspected by this dark land, I had the civilization of the nineteenth century booming under its very nose. It was fenced away from the public view, but there it was, a gigantic and unassailable fact, and to be heard from yet, if I lived and had luck. There it was, as sure a fact, and as substantial a fact, as any serene volcano, standing innocent with its smokeless summit in the blue sky, and giving no sign of the rising hell in its bowels. My schools and churches were children four years before. They were grown up now. My shops of that day were vast factories now. Where I had a dozen trained men then, I had a thousand now. Where I had one brilliant expert then, I had fifty now. I stood with my hand on the cock, so to speak, ready to turn it on and flood the midnight world with light at any moment. But I was not going to do the thing in that sudden way. It was not my policy. The people could not have stood it, and, moreover, I should have had the established Roman Catholic Church on my back in a minute. No, I had been going cautiously all the while. I had had confidential agents trickling through the country some time, whose office was to undermine knighthood by imperceptible degrees, and to gnaw a little at this and that, and the other superstition, and so prepare the way gradually for a better order of things. I was turning on my light one candle power at a time, and meant to continue to do so. I had scattered some branch schools secretly about the kingdom, and they were doing very well 
I meant to work this racket more and more as time wore on, if nothing occurred to frighten me. One of my deepest secrets was my West Point, my military academy. I kept that most jealously out of sight, and I did the same with my naval academy, which I had established at a remote seaport. Both were prospering to my satisfaction. Clarence was twenty-two now, and was my head executive, my right hand. He was a darling. He was equal to anything. There wasn't anything he couldn't turn his hand to. Of late I had been training him for journalism, for the time seemed about right for a start in the newspaper line. Nothing big, but just a small weekly for experimental circulation in my civilization nurseries. He took to it like a duck. There was an editor concealed in him, sure. Already he had doubled himself in one way. He talked sixth century and wrote nineteenth. His journalistic style was climbing steadily. It was already up to the back-settlement Alabama mark, and couldn't be told from the editorial output of that region either by matter or flavor. We had another large departure on hand, too. This was a telegraph and a telephone, our first venture in this line. These wires were for private service only, as yet, and must be kept private until a riper day should come. We had a gang of men on the road, working mainly by night. They were stringing ground wires. We were afraid to put up poles, for they would attract too much inquiry. Ground wires were good enough, in both instances, for my wires were protected by an insulation of my own invention which was perfect. My men had orders to strike across country avoiding roads, and establishing connection with any considerable towns whose lights betrayed their presence, and leaving experts in charge. Nobody could tell you how to find any place in the kingdom, for nobody ever went intentionally to any place, but only struck it by accident in his wanderings, and then generally left it without thinking to inquire what its name was. At one time and another we had sent out topographical expeditions to survey and map the kingdom, but the priests had always interfered and raised trouble. So we had given the thing up for the present. It would be poor wisdom to antagonize the church." As for the general condition of the country, it was as it had been when I arrived in it, to all intents and purposes. I had made changes, but they were necessarily slight, and they were not noticeable. Thus far I had not even meddled with taxation, outside of the taxes which provided the royal revenues. I had systematized those, and put the service on an effective and righteous basis. As a result, these revenues were already quadrupled and yet the burden was so much more equably distributed than before that all the kingdom felt a sense of relief, and the praises of my administration were hearty and general. Personally, I struck an interruption now, but I did not mind it. It could not have happened at a better time. Earlier it could have annoyed me, but now everything was in good hands and swimming right along. The king had reminded me several times of late that the postponement I had asked for, four years before, had about run out now. It was a hint that I ought to be starting out to seek adventures, and get up a reputation of a size to make me worthy of the honour of breaking a lance with Sir Sagramor, who was still out grailing, but was being hunted for by various relief expeditions, and might be found any year now. So you see I was expecting this interruption. It did not take me by surprise. End of chapter 10 a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 11, The Yankee in Search of Adventures. 
there never was such a country for wandering liars and they were of both sexes hardly a month went by without one of these tramps arriving and generally loaded with a tale about some princess or other wanting help to get her out of some far-away castle where she was held in captivity by a lawless scoundrel usually a giant now you would think that the first thing the king would do after listening to such a novelette from an entire stranger would be to ask for credentials yes and a, a pointer or two as to locality of castle best route to it and so on but nobody ever thought of so simple and common sense a thing as that no everybody swallowed these people's lies whole and never asked a question of any sort or about anything well one day when i was not around one of these people came along it was a she one this time and told a tale of the usual pattern her mistress was a captive in a vast and gloomy castle along with forty-four other young and beautiful girls pretty much all of them princesses they had been languishing in that cruel captivity for twenty-six years the masters of the castle were three stupendous brothers each with four arms and one eye the eye in the centre of the forehead and as big as a fruit sort of fruit not mentioned their usual slovenliness in statistics would you believe it the king and the whole round table were in raptures over this preposterous opportunity for adventure every knight of the table jumped for the chance and begged for it but to their vexation and chagrin the king conferred it upon me who had not asked for it at all by an effort i contained my joy when clarence brought me the news but he he could not contain his his mouth gushed delight and gratitude in a steady discharge delight in my good fortune gratitude to the king for this splendid mark of his favor for me he could keep neither his legs nor his body still but pirouetted about the place in an airy ecstasy of happiness on my side i could have cursed the kindness that conferred upon me this benefaction but i kept my vexation under the surface for policy's sake and did what i could to let on to be glad indeed i said i was glad and in a way it was true i was as glad as a person is when he is scalped well one must make the best of things and not waste time with useless fretting but get down to business and see what can be done in all lies there is wheat among the chaff i must get at the wheat in this case so i sent for the girl and she came she was a comely enough creature and soft and modest but if signs went for anything she didn't know as much as a lady's watch i said my dear have you been questioned as to particulars she said she hadn't well i didn't expect you had but i thought i would ask to make sure it's the way i've been raised now you mustn't take it unkindly if i remind you that as we don't know you we must go a little slow you may be all right of course and we'll hope that you are but to take it for granted isn't business you understand that i'm obliged to ask you a few questions just answer up fair and square and don't be afraid where do you live when you are at home in the land of moda fair sir land of moda i don't remember hearing of it before parents living as to that i know not if they be yet on live sith it is many years that i have lain shut up in the castle your name please i hight the demoiselle alisande de cartloise an it please you 
do you know anybody here who can identify you that were not likely fair lord i being come hither now for the first time have you brought any letters any documents any proofs that you are trustworthy and truthful of a surety no and wherefore should i have i not a tongue and cannot i say all that myself but your saying it you know and somebody else's saying it is different different how might that be i fear me i do not understand don't understand land of why you see you see my great scott can't you understand a little thing like that can't you understand the difference between your why why do you look so innocent and idiotic i in truth i know not but it were the will of god yes yes i reckon that's about the size of it don't mind my seeming excited i'm not let us change the subject now as to this castle with forty-five princesses in it and three ogres at the head of it uh, tell me uh, where is this harem harem the castle you understand where is the castle oh as to that it is great and strong and well beseen and lieth in a far country yes it is many leagues how many ah fair sir it were woundily hard to tell they are so many and do so lap the one upon the other and being made all in the same image and tinct with the same colour one may not know the one league from its fellow nor how to count them except they be taken apart and ye wit well it were god's work to do that being not within man's capacity for ye will note hold on hold on never mind about the distance whereabouts does the castle lie what's the direction from here ah please you sir it hath no direction from here but reason that the road lieth not straight but turneth evermore wherefore the direction of its place abideth not but is some time under the one sky and anon under another whereso if ye be minded that it is in the east and when thitherward ye shall observe that the way of the road doth yet again turn upon itself by the space of half a circle and this marvel happening again and yet again and still again it will grieve you that you had thought by vanities of the mind to thwart and bring to naught the will of him that giveth not a castle a direction from a place except it pleaseth him and if it please him not will the rather that he even all castles and all directions thereunto vanish out of the earth leaving the places wherein they tarry desolate and vacant so warning his creatures that where he will he will and where he will not he oh that's all right that's all right give us a rest never mind about the direction hang the direction i, I beg pardon I, I beg a thousand pardons i am not well to-day pay no attention when i soliloquize it is an old habit an old bad habit and hard to get rid of when one's digestion is all disordered with eating food that was raised forever and ever before he was born good land a man can't keep his functions regular on spring chickens thirteen hundred years old but come never mind about that let's um have you got such a thing as a map of that region about you now a good map is it peradventure that manner of thing which of late the unbelievers have brought from over the great seas which being boiled in oil and an onion and salt added thereto doth what a map uh, what are you talking about don't you know what a map is there there never mind D don't explain i hate explanations they fog a thing up so that you can't tell anything about it run along dear good day uh, show her the way clarence oh well 
It was reasonably plain, now, why these donkeys didn't prospect these liars for details. It may be that this girl had a fact in her somewhere, but I don't believe you could have sluiced it out with a hydraulic, nor got it with the earlier forms of blasting, even. It was a case for dynamite. Why, she was a perfect ass, and yet the king and his knights had listened to her as if she had been a leaf out of the gospel. It kind of sizes up the whole party. And think of the simple ways of this court. This wandering wench hadn't any more trouble to get access to the king in his palace than she would have had to get into the poorhouse in my day and country. In fact, he was glad to see her, glad to hear her tale. With that adventure of hers to offer, she was as welcome as a corpse is to a coroner. Just as I was ending up these reflections, Clarence came back. I remarked upon the barren result of my efforts with the girl, hadn't got hold of a single point that could help me to find the castle. The youth looked a little surprised, or puzzled, or something, and intimated that he had been wondering to himself what I had wanted to ask the girl all those questions for. "'Why, great guns!' I said. "'Don't I want to find the castle? And how else would I go about it?' "'La, sweet your worship, one may lightly answer that, I ween. She will go with thee. They always do. She will ride with thee.' ride with me nonsense but of a truth she will she will ride with thee thou shalt see what she browse around the hills and scour the woods with me alone and i as good as engaged to be married why it's scandalous think how it would look my the dear face that rose before me the boy was eager to know all about this tender matter i swore him to secrecy and then whispered her name puss flanagan he looked disappointed and said he didn't remember the countess. How natural it was for the little courtier to give her a rank. He asked me where she lived. In East Hart—I came to myself and stopped, a little confused, and then I said, Never mind now, I'll, I'll tell you some time. And might he see her? Would I let him see her some day? It was but a little thing to promise, thirteen hundred years or so, and he so eager, so I said yes. But I sighed, I couldn't help it. And yet there was no sense in sighing, for she wasn't born yet. But that is the way we are made. We don't reason where we feel, we just feel. My expedition was all the talk that day and that night, and the boys were very good to me, and made much of me, and seemed to have forgotten their vexation and disappointment, and come to be as anxious for me to hive those ogres and set those ripe old virgins loose as if it were themselves that had the contract. Well, they were good children, but just children, that is all. And they gave me no end of points about how to scout for giants, and how to scoop them in, and they told me all sorts of charms against enchantments, and gave me salves and other rubbish to put on my wounds. But it never occurred to one of them to reflect that if I was such a wonderful necromancer as I was pretending to be, I ought not to need salves or instructions or charms against enchantments and least of all arms and armor on a foray of any kind, even against fire-spouting dragons and devils hot from perdition, let alone such poor adversaries as these I was after, these commonplace ogres of the back settlements. I was to have an early breakfast, and start at dawn, for that was the usual way, but I had the demon's own time with my armor, and this delayed me a little. It is troublesome to get into and there is so much detail. First you wrap a layer or two of blanket around your body, for a sort of cushion, and to keep off the cold iron. 
then you put on your sleeves and shirt of chain mail these are made of small steel links woven together and they form a fabric so flexible that if you toss your shirt onto the floor it slumps into a pile like a peck of wet fishnet it is very heavy and is nearly the uncomfortablest material in the world for a night shirt yet plenty used it for that tax collectors and reformers and one-horse kings with a defective title and those sorts of people then you put on your shoes flatboats roofed over with interleaving bands of steel and screw your clumsy spurs into the heels next you buckle your greaves on your legs and your creases on your thighs then come your backplate and your breastplate and you begin to feel crowded then you hitch onto the breastplate the half petticoat of broad overlapping bands of steel which hangs down in front but is scalloped out behind so you can sit down and isn't any real improvement on an inverted coal scuttle either for looks or for wear or to wipe your hands on next you belt on your sword then you put your stove-pipe joints onto your arms your iron gauntlets onto your hands your iron rat-trap onto your head with a rag of steel web hitched onto it to hang over the back of your neck and there you are snug as a candle in a candle mold this is no time to dance well a man that is packed away like that is a nut that isn't worth the cracking there is so little of the meat even when you get down to it by comparison with the shell the boys helped me or i never could have got in just as we finished sir bedivere happened in and i saw that as like as not i hadn't chosen the most convenient outfit for a long trip how stately he looked and tall and broad and grand he had on his head a conical steel cask that only came down to his ears and for visor had only a narrow steel bar that extended down to his upper lip and protected his nose and all the rest of him from neck to heel was flexible chain mail trousers and all but pretty much all of him was hidden under his outside garment which of course was of chain mail as i said and hung straight from his shoulders to his ankles and from his middle to the bottom both before and behind was divided so that he could ride and let the skirts hang down on each side he was going grailing and it was just the outfit for it too i would have given a good deal for that ulster but it was too late now to be fooling around the sun was just up the king and the court were all on hand to see me off and wish me luck so it wouldn't be etiquette for me to tarry you don't get on your horse yourself no if you try it you would get disappointed they carry you out just as they carry a sun-struck man to the drug-store and put you on and help get you to rights and fix your feet in the stirrups and all the while you do feel so strange and stuffy and like somebody else like somebody that has been married on a sudden or struck by lightning or something like that and hasn't quite fetched around yet and is sort of numb and can't just get his bearings then they stood up the mast they called a spear in its socket by my left foot and i gripped it with my hand lastly they hung my shield around my neck and i was all complete and ready to up anchor and get to sea everybody was as good to me as they could be and a maid of honor gave me the stirrup-cup her own self there was nothing more to do now but for that damsel to get up behind me on a pillion which she did and put an arm or so around me to hold on and so we started and everybody gave us a good-bye and waved their handkerchiefs or helmets and everybody we met going down the hill and through the village was respectful to us except some shabby little boys on the outskirts they said oh what a guy and hove clods at us 
In my experience, boys are the same in all ages. They don't respect anything. They don't care for anything or anybody. They say, Go up, bald head, to the prophet going his unoffending way in the gray of antiquity. They sass me in the holy gloom of the Middle Ages, and I had seen them act the same way in Buchanan's administration. I remember, because I was there and helped. The prophet had his bears and settled with his boys, and I wanted to get down and settle with mine, but it wouldn't answer, because I couldn't have got up again. I hate a country without a derrick. End of chapter 11 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 12 Slow Torture Straight off we were in the country. It was most lovely and pleasant in those sylvan solitudes in the early cool morning, in the first freshness of autumn. From hilltops we saw fair green valleys lying spread out below, with streams winding through them, and island groves of trees here and there, and huge lonely oaks scattered about and casting black blots of shade. And beyond the valleys we saw the ranges of hills, blue with haze, stretching away in billowy perspective to the horizon, with at wide intervals a dim fleck of white or gray on a wave summit, which we knew was a castle. We crossed broad natural lawns sparkling with dew, and we moved like spirits, the cushioned turf giving out no sound of footfall. We dreamed along through glades in a mist of green light that got its tint from the sun-drenched roof of leaves overhead, and by our feet the clearest and coldest of runlets went frisking and gossiping over its reefs, and making a sort of whispering music, comfortable to hear. And at times we left the world behind, and entered into the solemn great deeps and rich gloom of the forest, where furtive wild things whisked and scurried by, and were gone before you could even get your eye on the place where the noise was and where only the earliest birds were turning out and getting to business with a song here and a quarrel yonder and a mysterious far-off hammering and drumming for worms on a tree-trunk away somewhere in the impenetrable remoteness of the woods and by and by out we would swing again into the glare about the third or fourth or fifth time that we swung out into the glare it was along there somewhere a couple of hours or so after sun-up it wasn't as pleasant as it had been. It was beginning to get hot. This was quite noticeable. We had a very long pull after that without any shade. Now it is curious how progressively little frets grow and multiply after they once get a start. Things which I didn't mind at all at first I began to mind now, and more and more, too, all the time. The first ten or fifteen times I wanted my handkerchief I didn't seem to care. I got along and said, never mind, it isn't any matter, and dropped it out of my mind. But now it was different. I wanted it all the time. It was nag, 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 right along, and no rest. I couldn't get it out of my mind, and so at last I lost my temper and said, hang a man that would make a suit of armor without any pockets in it. You see, I had my handkerchief in my helmet, and some other things. But it was that kind of a helmet that you can't take off by yourself. That hadn't occurred to me when I put it there, and in fact I didn't know it. I supposed it would be particularly convenient there, and so now the thought of its being there, so handy and close by, and yet not get atable, made it all the worse and the harder to bear. Yes, the thing that you can't get is the thing that you want, mainly. 
Every one has noticed that. Well, it took my mind off from everything else, took it clear off, and centered it in my helmet. And mile after mile, there it stayed, imagining the handkerchief, picturing the handkerchief. And it was bitter and aggravating to have the salt sweat keep trickling down into my eyes, and I couldn't get at it. It seems like a little thing on paper, but it was not a little thing at all. It was the most real kind of misery. I would not say it if it was not so. I made up my mind that I would carry along a reticule next time, let it look how it might, and people say what they would. Of course, these iron dudes of the round table would think it was scandalous, and maybe raise shell about it. But as for me, give me comfort first, and style afterwards. So we jogged along, and now and then we struck a stretch of dust, and it would tumble up in clouds, and get into my nose, and make me sneeze and cry, and of course I said things I oughtn't to have said, I don't deny that. I am not better than others. We couldn't seem to meet anybody in this lonesome Britain, not even an ogre, and in the mood I was in then it was well for the ogre, that is, an ogre with a handkerchief. Most knights would have thought of nothing but getting his armor. But so I got his bandana, he could keep his hardware for all of me. Meantime, it was getting hotter and hotter in there. You see, the sun was beating down and warming up the iron more and more all the time. Well, when you are hot that way, every little thing irritates you. When I trotted, I rattled like a crate of dishes, and that annoyed me. And, moreover, I couldn't seem to stand that shield slatting and banging now about my breast, now around my back and if I dropped into a walk, my joints creaked and screeched in that wearisome way that a wheelbarrow does, and as we didn't create any breeze at that gate, I was like to get fried in that stove. And besides, the quieter you went, the heavier the iron settled down on you, and the more and more tons you seemed to weigh every minute. And you had to be always changing hands and passing your spear over to the other foot. It got so irksome for one hand to hold it long at a time. Well— you know, when you perspire that way, in rivers, there comes a time when you, when you, well, when you itch. You are inside, your hands are outside, so there you are. Nothing but iron between. It is not a light thing, let it sound as it may. First it is one place, then another, then some more, and it goes on spreading and spreading, and at last the territory is all occupied, and nobody can imagine what you feel like, nor how unpleasant it is. And when it had got to the worst, and it seemed to me that I could not stand anything more, a fly got in through the bars and settled on my nose, and the bars were stuck and wouldn't work, and I couldn't get the visor up, and I could only shake my head, which was baking hot by this time, and the fly—well, you know how a fly acts when he has got a certainty. He only minded the shaking enough to change from nose to lip, and lip to ear, and buzz and buzz all around in there, and keep on lighting and biting, in a way that a person already so distressed as I was simply could not stand. So I gave in, and got Alessande to unship the helmet and relieve me of it. Then she emptied the conveniences out of it and fetched it full of water, and I drank, and then stood up, and she poured the rest down inside the armor. One cannot think how refreshing it was. She continued to fetch and pour until I was well soaked and thoroughly comfortable. It was good to have a rest and peace. But nothing is quite perfect in this life at any time. I had made a pipe a while back, and also some pretty fair tobacco, 
not the real thing, but what some of the Indians use, the inside bark of the willow, dried. These comforts had been in the helmet, and now I had them again, but no matches. Gradually, as the time wore along, one annoying fact was borne in upon my understanding, that we were weather-bound. An armed novice cannot mount his horse without help, and plenty of it. Sandy was not enough, not enough for me, anyway. We had to wait until somebody should come along. Waiting in silence would have been agreeable enough, for I was full of matter for reflection, and wanted to give it a chance to work. I wanted to try and think how it was that rational, or even half-rational, men could ever have learnt to wear armor, considering its inconveniences, and how they had managed to keep up such a fashion for generations when it was plain that what I had suffered today they had had to suffer all the days of their lives. I wanted to think that out, and moreover I wanted to think out some way to reform this evil, and persuade the people to let the foolish fashion die out. But thinking was out of the question in the circumstances. You couldn't think where Sandy was. She was a quite biddable creature, and good-hearted, but she had a flow of talk that was as steady as a mill, and made your head soar like the drays and wagons in a city. If she had had a cork she would have been a comfort, but you can't cork that kind. They would die. Her clack was going all day, and you would think something would surely happen to her works by and by, but no, they never got out of order. She never had to slack up for words. She could grind and pump and churn and buzz by the week, and never stop to oil up or blow out, and yet the result was just nothing but wind. She never had any ideas any more than a fog has. She was a perfect blatherskite. I mean for jaw, jaw, jaw. Talk, talk, talk. Jabber, jabber, jabber. But just as good as she could be. I hadn't minded her mill that morning, on account of having that hornet's nest of other troubles, but more than once in the afternoon I had to say, "'Take a rest, child. The way you are using up all the domestic air, the kingdom will have to go to importing it by to-morrow, and it's a low enough treasury without that.'" End of chapter 12